Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. <laughs> Show me the crypto. In a world on the brink of disruption, two men will bring you clarity by interviewing some of the most intelligent and influential names in the blockchain world. Welcome to Show Me the Crypto with your hosts, Wade Patterson and Ulf Lonegren. Well, hi there and welcome to Show Me the Crypto. My name is Wade Patterson. And I'm Ulf Lonegren. We're a couple of friends from Canada who love learning about cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, and we're happy you're along for the ride. Whether you're a crypto virgin or you know your way around the block, we hope our interviews with some of the most intelligent and influential people in the blockchain space help bring you value. And on this episode, we're joined by David Hoffman, co-owner of Bit of Bankless. David's plans to pursue a graduate degree were put on hold when he discovered blockchain technology, and his intrinsic desire to learn more about the space has turned into a career of promoting the best of what blockchain has to offer. Through these efforts, David and his Bankless co-host, Ryan Sean Adams, have interviewed some of the biggest names in crypto, including Vitalik Buterin, the Winklevoss twins, and Eric Voorhees. Most of David's spare time is spent either writing or reading about Ethereum, and he makes sure there is always an ETH USD chart on a screen within viewing distance. David, welcome to Show Me the Crypto. Hey, thanks for having me here, guys. That was a really generous intro. Thanks for the kind words. Hey, we are stoked to have you on. And so I touched on this briefly in the bio, but you're in university, you're studying psychology. At what point on the timeline did you discover blockchain technology and what was your initial impression? Yeah, I, I discovered crypto, um, mainly Ethereum. Ethereum is the thing that, that captured my attention in 2017 during the price run-ups, as one does. This is this is how this industry works. Prices go up and people's attention goes to the industry. Uh, some people stay behind after the uh, prices collapsed. I, I stayed behind. Um, and this, uh, this was two, roughly two years after I graduated from undergraduate um, uh, university. And then I got into, uh, I was on my way to apply to uh, graduate school for physical therapy, uh, really into the world of like movement health sciences. Um, but at some point in time, I was I was trying to juggle the balance between applying for graduate school and also learning about this fascinating thing called like Ethereum and crypto and Bitcoin and all, all the attention going on there. And, and yeah, at some point, instead of instead of just like studying for the GRE and, and researching schools and, and doing what I needed to do to get into grad school, I found myself instead like watching Vitalik YouTube videos <laughs> or reading white papers or doing other things that were not university related. And at some point that just came to an inflection point where I had to be honest with myself, like, what is my attention? Where's my attention really going here? Like, what do I really care about? Uh, and I realized that there's no way that I could like sit and be happy inside of grad school while I'm watching this industry grow. Um, and I just had at some point made the commitment to bail from grad school and just go all into crypto. Why is blockchain technology worth paying attention to in your opinion? Yeah, so it's one of the reasons why I think this industry is so hard to understand is that we are never taught in schools about money. And so getting the conversation about like why blockchain tech is cool actually has to start with a conversation about what money is uh, because um, 
you know, there, there was always that camp, uh, not always, but like there was that, is that like a blockchain, not Bitcoin camp, which definitely I would say is not a rich area of study. Uh, the, the whole, I would say that the, the blockchain and Bitcoiners would, would resonate with this. The blockchain is meant to host scarce assets, right? And Bitcoin being the first, you could call that the first ever digital scarce money. But the conversation doesn't start with blockchain. The, the conversation starts with money and value and like what value is. Uh, to me, Bitcoin and Ethereum are property rights management systems. And Bitcoin particularly is a, a property rights management system for Bitcoins. And it turns out that that property rights management system is so incredibly valuable that Bitcoin turns into be quote unquote money. Um, and so that's, uh, and so that's kind of, that's where I got into the space as uh, when, when I first put my foot into in uh, to the door, I was understanding that this is actually like a monetary revolution more than it is a technological revolution. Um, and now I'm actually uh, forgetting the, the original question. Just, just why in general it's so important for people to pay attention to uh, blockchain. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's also important to know that like fiat money, the money that we currently have is not that old. Like the dollar in its current form is only 30 years old uh, when we went off the gold standard in the 70s, 1971, I think. Um, the actual brand of the dollar is older than that. It goes back, you know, to 100, 100 you know, plus years. Um, but the, the lack of education around what money is in our, in our studies kind of forgets to inform us that like money's change. Like monies as a form change from one to the next. And so to think that, you know, we are just going to have like this current form of money from now until the end of time, like even our parents didn't have the same kind of money from when they were born pre seventies to, to what the money is now. Right. So it's really, and especially as money, the most uh, it's something that you touch almost every single day. It's half of every transaction. It's really important to understand that, you know, this industry is about offering new forms of money to come into and money is one of the most important things in this entire universe 100 percent. yeah um i don't know do you follow ray dalio at all totally yeah <laughs> yeah ray dalio's uh put together a series i think it's actually a part of his upcoming uh book but he talks about the the, the changing order of money uh through mm -hmm. time and it's super interesting for those who aren't familiar because like we've been in a time where everyone who's alive right now is pretty much used to one form of currency. Um, mm -hmm. As you mentioned, it, it's changed slightly from a technological level. And we've been working through a transition period right now. But over time, it's completely changed who's been in control of money, um, you know, time and time again. And I think that that's something people don't really recognize mm -hmm. or ever think about until they get into something like cryptocurrency that then kind of opens their eyes to that world and how that has happened in our past. Yeah, totally. Um, my mom would always uh, uh, struggle trying to explain what I would do to her friends. And so at some point in time, uh, I just promised that I will like sit people down and like give a, a presentation to all people at, all at once. And that turned into actually an event at a brewery. So I hosted like a two hour event where I could actually just explain the industry. Uh, so it was actually a pretty like boomer rich uh, attended <laughs> event. Uh, There's some, some of my friends, of course, but like it was like, you know, 20 to 30 of, of and, I, and I made some advertisements. So it was like a, you know, come in come and learn about this industry and it was i talked for about an hour and the first 45 minutes i didn't talk at all about crypto and what i talked about was the the progress of money throughout time trying to 
uh, inject the idea into people's heads that money money's change. And especially boomers who you know were grow, uh, uh, born in the 40s, like raised in the 60s and 70s, they haven't really known anything other than the brand of the dollar. So if in order to get them to like understand and appreciate Bitcoin, which is kind of like a big ask, get, getting them to like wrap their heads around a new form of value that's not the dollar, you can't just start talking about how cool Bitcoin is. You actually have to break down their previous mental models of what money is just to, to, cause it's weird to consider money as not something that the state offers you. It's weird to think of like money. That is something that, you know, you find in the ground, like gold, or you find in the ground of the internet, like Bitcoin. Um, it, it first takes breaking down before you can build up the value behind this industry. I want to dive deeper there into Ethereum specifically because a lot of our audience is that group that is maybe learning about crypto for the first time, brand new to the space. So what is it about Ethereum that gets you so excited about it? Yeah, so like I said earlier, these systems are property management systems. That's what a blockchain does. Uh, a blockchain is interesting because it is a ledger, a distributed ledger that we can all trust. You know, Bitcoin as the first instantiation of this is a very good ledger for transferring Bitcoins. The cool thing about Ethereum is that Ethereum is agnostic. It is a a agnostic property rights management system. And so it can be the property rights management system for any assets, any asset that you want to spin up. And that's kind of one of the powers of Ethereum is that it offers what I like to call abundant scarcity. Uh, there is now plenty of ways to generate scarcity on Ethereum. This is what uh, the ERC-20 token is on Ethereum. The ERC-20 token, that's the token standard. Almost all tokens on Ethereum are ERC-20 tokens. You know, DAI, MKR, Aave, Wi-Fi. Um, all of these are ERC-20 tokens. And anyone can spin one up. So like uh, when Ryan and I on the Bankless program, we sold uh, 50 t-shirts, uh, but only if they were redeemable for these tokens. So you'd actually have to buy the token and then burn one. And the cool thing is, is there's like this scarce asset that goes along with the t-shirt. And how would we do this in the legacy world? How would we make verifiable, provable scarcity uh, in the legacy system without a, an Ethereum blockchain? Um, my previous company that I worked at, Realty, it used ERC-20 tokens to represent the deed to a, a property. Um, so that's one way to use a token. Uh, then there's plenty of native assets on Ethereum, like all the ones I just mentioned, all, all the other uh, tokens. And it can, it can do anything. It's a generalizable internet-based online property management system, which offers infrastructure for the whole entire globe to leverage all at once, have a, a communal source of truth, a canonical source of truth of where all the assets are owned by whom, and whom, of course, is people's Ethereum addresses. Uh, that's the power I see being unlocked with Ethereum, and that's what really gets me excited about it. You mentioned realty. Um, and that this was something, uh, your previous company. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and how you got involved uh, in that? Yeah, while I was working my way through the 2018-19 bear market, I was in the world of uh, tokenized securities. I, was, I worked for a consulting company called uh, Bunker Capital that um, consulted with people that wanted to issue a tokenized security. One of those clients uh, was Realty, and also one of the owners of Bunker Capital also was spinning up realty. So like he had his like one foot in both camps. Um, and it, it became pretty clear that all the other clients didn't really have the cool product that realty had. Um, and realty had something that was very much in demand, like international uh, access to US real estate investments, especially in Detroit, uh, which is a very hot place for international real estate investments. And what, what you can do with Ethereum is you can simply take a deed to a property, 
and put it into a LLC and then it and then tie that LLC to a token on Ethereum or in Realty's case, a thousand tokens, depending on, on the property um, to keep the price down, right? And so we would we would want the tokens to be roughly valued at $50. And so we would mint X number of tokens to match that price, depending on the value of the property. Um, so you, and, and then you can sign up with Realty, go through the KYC process, and then you can purchase these tokens that gives you claims to the property uh, in Detroit. So it's an online way to access US real estate very, very easily. And the cool thing about Realty is that they take the rent money and send it to the token holders every single month, right? So they collect the money from the tenant, turn it into USDC coin or a stable coin on Ethereum, and then it gets sent to the token holders. And that's just something that you can, that's one of the many things that you can do with Ethereum. So we use, we use two different types of tokens there, both ERC-20 tokens. One is the claim on the property and the other is the currency, the money that we send to the property owners for the revenue from the rental income. Um, I thought that was a pretty cool model. Yeah, no kidding. Beyond uh, tokenized kind of fractional ownership in real estate, do you see the real estate industry being with realty and whatnot? Do you see it being disrupted further based on blockchain technology? You know, I kind of consider everything is going to get disrupted by Ethereum uh, at some point in time, mm -hmm. some industries uh, sooner than others. I think the off-chain assets and off-chain, like there are some to, to define that, there are some assets on Ethereum that are solely on-chain. And these would be like DeFi tokens that control over DeFi protocols that exist on Ethereum. You know, the, everything is on Ethereum. Off-chain assets like a property or like the title to a car or some claim on some real world uh, asset is a is a much harder problem to solve because that asset is in meat space, right? That's in human land. There is a court system that actually determines the final settlement. Whereas on Ethereum, Ethereum is just like a, a ledger to account for the updates, but the actual settlement of the house uh, or, or the real world property actually is determined by a court of law. And so you're actually trying to transcend two systems of property ownership. Uh, you're trying to transcend both the legal legacy system of property ownership and also property ownership on Ethereum. That that's a that's a big challenge, and I think that's kind of one of the reasons why the off-chain asset tokenization industry is kind of going to be slower to move than the native DeFi infrastructure. Just it's easier to move if everything's on Ethereum. However, real estate has a very compelling argument for why it needs to be on a public blockchain like Ethereum, because uh, real estate is very low liquidity and very high value. And what Ethereum offers and what public blockchains offers are extreme amounts of liquidity, but they suffer from value because their only real kind of value that you can get are these like native DeFi token protocols. There's no other way to get value onto Ethereum. So like real estate has what Ethereum wants, which is value, you know, just market cap, just the value of the property. And Ethereum has what real estate wants, which is like easily transferable ownership and liquid access to real estate. So the marriage between those two things, I think is going to be really powerful. Of all the off-chain assets to come to Ethereum, I do believe real estate is going to be first in the category. Um, but again, it's it, the off-chain asset conversation is difficult just because again, you're transcending two, two universes, right? Um, so that's, that's what Realty is trying to tackle. Switching gears a little bit here, David, um, I'm super impressed with what you and your co-host have accomplished with Bankless and, and in a relatively short time as well, uh, considering that you just learned about the space in 2017. Um, why does it, so there was an interview I saw that you did with with Anthony Sassano and you asked him, why does the world need the Daily Gui? So I'm going to ask you, why does the world need Bankless? 
That's a, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it seems like it's been a relatively short time, but, uh, you know, Ryan, Ryan started the newsletter before I came onto Bankless. And so that newsletter had been, had been churning, but also, uh, I, I can't remember when he started that I, probably sometime in 2019. It's also worth noting that Ethereum is only six years old. Yeah. Um, and so I've been in crypto for, you know, three, a little bit over three years, which is over half of Ethereum's lifespan. Um, you know, not as long as Bitcoin. Bitcoin has been around for much longer, but as far as Ethereum goes, and almost all of Ethereum's history has happened in the last like two years. Um, so for us, at last for Ethereum goes, that's how young this this industry is. Like you can spend two to three years in it, and you're actually uh, a, a veteran. Um, it's it's very short lifespan. Why does the world need Bankless? Um, so when I was, <laughs> when I was younger, I was very, very politically motivated, maybe pretty also naive, uh, kind of a revolutionary. I would wear like CCCP shirts to, to middle school, kind of not really knowing what I was doing. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I enjoyed the ruse. Right. Um, but you know, uh, still, still like politically motivated. Um, but at some point politics, I kind of got disillusioned with politics, like actually like trying to invoke change at like the, the government layer. Um, and I got into cryptocurrency, and after after a while, I, I realized that cryptocurrency is actually an extremely political revolution. Uh, these are social revolutions that determine how things, how how people manage value, and that's typically something in the realm of politics. And the bankless revolution, to me, is a very anti-authoritarian revolution. So, so you have you have that that political compass meme where you have the left and the right, and then you have authoritarian and libertarian. I never really considered myself a libertarian, but I definitely consider myself an anti-authoritarian. And what we saw throughout the revolution of money from uh, gold at the very beginning, not the very beginning, but you know, pretty far, pretty far into history to where we are now is we saw, we see like this money change shape and form, but then it always tends to be captured by some entity that leveraged the capture of money systems for their own benefit, right? Um, so if you are the king and you get to have the right to mint coin, that's an extremely powerful tool. And money over time always tends to converge. It's very powerful to be able to control money. Uh, right now, the, there's and there's always only one entity that really controls money, right? Like the Argent, Argentina has a central bank, Venezuela has a central bank, but they don't control money, right? They That's not the money of the world. The money of the world is the US dollar. And the US dollar, the Federal Reserve, they have the money printer. That's a really powerful tool. And the exercise, the exercising of that tool is, I think, an inherently authoritarian exercise. Um, money, I think, is a public good. It's something by the people, for the people. It's a bottom-up thing. And that's, this bottom-up thing is very powerful, and it tends to get captured by the people that have a monopoly on violence. And that's what the nation-state is. Uh, the nation-state is something that has a monopoly on violence. When we, when we watch our congressmen and our senators make decisions, what they are really saying is, is we are going to make these the law, and if people violate the law, we can use force to put them in jail. That's what the nation-state does. If they have the tool of the money printer behind them, that force is even more powerful. Um, and so it can be argued that like the leveraging of the money printer, the ability to print money is a is an extension of the power of a of an armed military. That's why the US military is so strong. Why? So the and, and I don't think like this cryptocurrency revolution is going to upend that, but it does put power back into the hands of the individual. Uh, the private key that only you have and only you know about that is easily hideable as a piece of paper or memorizable into your brain in the combination with public money, uh, public money like Bitcoin or Ether, not the dollar, not stable coins. Those aren't public money. Those are U.S. dollar top down monies. 
Bitcoin and, and Ether are bottom up money by the people for the people. In, and it's using property rights management systems that doesn't rely on the nation state and gives you more power. If you have Ether in your wallet or you have Bitcoin in your wallet, no one can take it away from you. No one can print more because the ability to print more is a form of um, seizing, right? So for example, if there's $10 out in the world and you have one of them, but somebody has the money printer and then they print 10 more dollars, the, the total supply of dollars just went from 20, 10 to 20 and you still have $1. So you actually got diluted by 50%. It's a backdoor seizing of the money. And this is why Bitcoin and Ethereum are so powerful is that they give power back to the individual. And I think that is something that is very much lacking in this world. There's tons of centralized power in nation state governments. There's tons of centralized power in, in banks, in wealthy banks. Um, and if we can get some of these um, powerful institutions disintermediated by smart contracts on Ethereum and by public monies, by Bitcoin and Ether, that's very, that's very empowering for the individual. And I think the universe is just better off if more individuals are empowered, at, at least in relationship to the power dynamics between you know, the central nation state and the individual. Ulf, did you realize that our audience has either been watching or listening to this episode for more than 20 minutes? 20 minutes? No way. They should probably subscribe. Yeah, they should subscribe and like and comment and turn on that notification bell. All right, back to the episode. And, and just in terms of <clears throat> your relationship and, and, you know, kind of building this this partnership with, with Ryan, you mentioned he had started the newsletter. Did you guys know each other beforehand or how did that partnership come about? Yeah, so I've actually never met the man. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love I have, it. I've, I've only actually interacted with him through Zoom or Discord. But it also like some, sometimes people think that's weird, but like, Welcome to 2021. Exactly. Right. Like, especially during COVID quarantine, like I've seen Ryan a hundred times more than like most of my friends. Right. And so at that point, like the the lines kind of blur between like, does it actually really matter if I haven't met this individual? Uh, We, we got, we got connected kind of on Twitter. Yeah, definitely on Twitter. Um, And at some point uh, his tweets and my tweets were just resonating with each other. And at some point we just got into a zoom call just to like talk about things. Like, how do you think about this? How do you think about this? A zoom call lasted about an hour and the the relationship kind of grew from there. He's, and then, and then later he spun up Bankless, the newsletter and that, that, that blew up and did really, really well. And at some point, I told, I, I just DM'd Ryan. It's like, you know, Ryan Bankless needs a podcast. He needs a podcast too. Podcasts are hot. There's uh, just this unfilled niche in the Ethereum ecosystem for a, a podcast that has this narrative base to it. Bankless is very narrative heavy. Uh, there's, there's Into the Ether, which is a fantastic podcast. And they are like explicit news and facts and data and analysis. And, you know, we have some of that at Bankless, but Bankless is more just like a movement, a revolution, a, a social phenomenon. Uh, and that needs a podcast. And so at some point I was just like pestering Ryan, like, Ryan, you got to do a podcast. Ryan, you got to do a podcast. Uh, and finally convinced him. Uh, and then we started the podcast before we actually formalized any sort of relationship, started the podcast podcast together. Um, but then after uh, just maybe one or two months, it became very obvious that this podcast is here to stay. It works well with a newsletter. Um, we also need to do the YouTube. There's also other things we can do. So we just formalized the relationship and made Bankless the, the company. So so speaking of Bankless, uh, you've had, as I mentioned, some big names on the show. Where do you see that content going, that podcast content? Do you have a wish list of people you want to get on? 
Oh yeah, we totally have a lit wish list. I really want to get on Andrew Yang. Uh, that's kind of my my big goal for 2021. I want to get him on the Bankless Pod. There are a few others as well. Uh, we tried to get Mark Cuban on recently, just kind of pestering him over over Twitter, um, and and a few other names that I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But we we have high hopes for for Bankless in 2021. And have you gone Bankless yet? Ironically, Bankless has a bank account, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it depends on how you define Bankless. So I hold the vast majority of all of my wealth inside of Ethereum, uh, like 97%, right? Uh, I keep enough cash in the bank account to pay off my credit cards and just, you know, a little bit of emergency funds. But other than that, it's in Ethereum. Like, so yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty damn Bankless. Nice. For those who have only heard of decentralized finance and want to dip their toes in, um, honestly, I really appreciate your answers so far because I think they're really great for new audiences. And that's part of who we want to uh, listen to show me the crypto. So for new audiences, you know, where should they get started in DeFi? What are, what are some of the fundamentals they need to understand? Yeah, DeFi is a system of interacting contracts on Ethereum. So on Ethereum, you have your public address, your private key that gives you access to your funds. And then the other side, the that, and that's one of two types of addresses on Ethereum. There's the public address where you hold your money and there are, and then there are contract addresses. And that's like a little chunk of software, a little chunk of code. And these codes do stuff. Um, and they, they interact and you give them permission to interact with your monies in ways that you approve. And I think one of the most basic contracts on Ethereum is Uniswap. The, um, you would also call this a money Lego. You would also call this uh, an Ethereum application. You would also call this a dApp. There's a bunch of different names for this. Um, but Uniswap is like one of the very basic like money Lego building blocks for Ethereum. And what Uniswap does is that it allows you to swap one token for another or Ether for token, you know, uh, Ether for USDC, USDC for MKR, MKR for YFI, like whatever. Um, and it, the way that it does that is uh, there's two participants. There's people that like to want to swap tokens one for another. And then there's people who provide the tokens for people to swap to. Uh, and so one person uh, who is interested in uh, swapping, you know, USDC for Ether will go to the Uniswap USDC Ether pool, which many, many people have supplied equal amounts, equal dollars amounts of USDC and Ether, right? So like the, the pool size for the USDC Ether pool inside of Uniswap is like $10 million. There's $5 million worth of Ether on one side. There's $5 million worth of USDC on the other side. If you're swapping USDC for Ether, you put USDC in the USDC pool and you are allowed to withdraw any equal amounts of Ether on the other side. And that's like a swap. And doing that, you actually offset the balance of these things. And that's how the price changes, right? If there's all of a sudden uh, 15 more dollars worth of USDC in the USDC pool, and then there's 15 less dollars worth of Ether in the Ether pool, the supply of USDC went up, the supply of uh, Ether went down, the price adjusts, that's how you adjust the price. Um, and that's a very simple mechanism for swapping, uh, swapping currencies. And the point about this whole thing is that this is completely automated. It's like one transaction, everything happens at once. You send your Ether or your money into the Uniswap code. It does all these changes and then it outputs you a new token and that's a swap. And that's just like the most basic building block for all of DeFi, right? Like almost all of DeFi kind of rests on top of Uniswap because it's such a universal swapper of tokens. 
then you can, we can get to even more complicated things like you know borrowing and lending from Aave, um, uh, you know, uh, pulling out a loan out of MakerDAO, uh, their synthetics, and all of these building blocks get more and more uh, complex and complicated and interesting, right? And the point about all these things are they're all in the same ecosystem. Ethereum is not a walled garden, it's open. So if you deploy a contract on Ethereum, if you deploy an app to Ethereum like Uniswap, all other applications can also use that as well as all humans. Like this thing is permissionless. Uh, and so after Uniswap has been deployed, it's been leveraged by almost every other DeFi app out there, right? If any DeFi app needs to swap tokens, it just plugs into Uniswap, right? So DeFi is just this one massive system of plugins. And we, this is what we call money Legos. We have all of these individual Legos and the, each one is an individual primitive. And you can start to combine them in as one does with Legos into whatever you uh, see fit, right? If you just combine them randomly, you're gonna get a mess of a Lego block. But if you put thought into it, you can turn Legos into like a spaceship or you know some, some functional thing. And that's what we see going on in Ethereum. There's these, these functional structures being built out of all of these individual components. And that is what I what we call DeFi. Like this, uh, the, the gargantuan, this Lego block structure that is all co uh, coming together. It's all coming in together into one basic structure. That is what we call DeFi. You mentioned there a little earlier in the conversation that 97% or something along those lines of your wealth is in Ethereum. So are, mm -hmm. would you consider yourself an Ethereum maximalist? And I'm interested mm -hmm. in your take on, you know, people who say there's going to be potentially Ethereum killers, or do you mm -hmm. see that ever happening? Uh, some of these other protocols uh, disrupting the market share of Ethereum. Yeah. Defining maximalist is important here. Um, we typically, the typical, if you just say maximalist, it's typically reserved for Bitcoin maximalists. And Bitcoin maximalists are like, there's only going to be one blockchain. It's Bitcoin. The game is over. It's all Bitcoin. That's That to me is Bitcoin maximalism. Um, I guess I have similar, um, similar attitudes about Ethereum, the blockchain, not ETH, the assets. So if I were to be a maximalist, I would be an Ethereum, the blockchain maximalist rather than ETH, the asset maximalist, where Bitcoin maximalists are more, they actually don't like the Bitcoin blockchain. They only like BTC, the assets. And that's an important distinction. Um, I'm going to go into a little tirade here. Please Love do. It. Uh, Love it. Yeah. So the big, there's their confusion here with Ethereum and Ether. There's two things. There's Ethereum, the blockchain, and Ether, the asset. And that same relationship is also true for Bitcoin, the blockchain, and BTC, the asset. But with Bitcoin, they're the same name. It's Bitcoin and Bitcoins, right? They're the same name. And Ethereum, there's two different names. But with Bitcoin, Bitcoiners thoroughly enjoy BTC, the asset, and they see the Bitcoin blockchain as a means to the end for BTC, the asset. The goal is BTC, the asset, not Bitcoin, the blockchain. They don't they don't like the Bitcoin blockchain. The, the, the blockchain itself is... Um, it's it's dead weight onto what is the real cool thing, which is BTC, the asset. Ethereum is a little bit uh, the opposite, right? Ethereum uses Ether, the asset, to create Ethereum, the blockchain. And Ethereum, like I said, is this agnostic property rights management system, this agnostic ledger where anybody can do anything. And that's kind of why I will... I wouldn't call myself an Ethereum maximalist, but I also wouldn't uh, say no to that label either. Uh, there are certain just network effects that uh, is associated with Ethereum uh, because it can be anything for anyone. It is a Turing complete platform. It can do anything so long as you can code it up. Uh, and at some point, those network effects behind Ethereum are pretty inarguable. 
And Ethereum has a number of different uh, tailwinds behind it. In addition to the fact that like almost all developer activity is on Ethereum and the openness of DeFi allows anyone to just build something and the structure that's being built is already so gargantuanly large in comparison to what's going on on other uh, smart contract platforms. Ethereum has a number of other advantages specifically with this credible neutrality, right? The Ethereum ICO raised, I can't remember the, the number off the top of my head, but it was something like $15 million, relatively low number for blockchain raises. Um, and it did it in this very fair method. It didn't, it, it wasn't venture capital funded. No one front ran the Ethereum ICO. The Ethereum ICO was basically done by only retail believers, right? Very, like, there was no institutions getting into the Ethereum ICO because it was one of the first. It, was, it wasn't the first ICO, but it was very early. And it was the first ICO before ICO kind of got tainted, before it kind of uh, left a bad taste in people's mouth because people realized the power of this thing. So we kind of call it the immaculate ICO. Like it only kind of works once. But this credible neutrality of the fairness of the the way that Ethereum was bootstrapped and what it and its its values and principles that it has, kind of like I was saying earlier, these things are political revolutions, and there are values baked into these chains. And Ethereum's values are like complete decentralization. Um, uh, credible neutrality with the ownership of the asset, distribution of ownership of the asset, um, and just trying to be a, a very inclusive place. And I think the values behind the Ethereum blockchain is also reflected in the Ethereum community. And at some point, we just have to admit that this thing has hit... Um, hit its liftoff it's 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 already gone like it's already going to in the in the trajectory that is going to take it in my opinion into success eth killers they they try and sell something that isn't actually the hard problem about blockchain innovation eth killers try say like we move super fast our blockchain is uh, has super high throughput um it's it's technologically advantaged but this is a monetary revolution. This is less a technological a technological revolution. Now, there's still uh, important technological components that we can innovate and, and design on. And that's why we're doing Ethereum 2.0. That's why we have some of the world's best cryptographers experimenting and researching cryptography to improve Ethereum. Yet, if you don't have the money aspect that Ether does and you don't have the credible neutrality of the blockchain uh, that and how the blockchain was created, because Ethereum has made a lot of people very wealthy. If it made VCs wealthy, that wouldn't be as credibly neutral as if it made the, indivi the individuals wealthy. Uh, and any Ethereum killer is VC funded, like almost all of them are. So it loses that credible neutrality. And they try and sell a product that, you know, the, the scalability, it's useful. We all want scalability, but that's not the hard problem. The hard problem is the money revolution and you don't get money without bottom-up trust in the platform. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it, there isn't trust in these things like EOS or Definity or, or Polkadot. These things are less money. They are more tech. And that's only one half of the revolution. You need both money and tech to have a strong system. And that's to me what Ethereum is. And I don't think I, I can't find any other um, platform that has both money and tech. And what do you think about when we reach a point in time, perhaps when these different blockchain technologies are all interoperable with Ethereum? You know, mm. does that add value is that something that isn't in your eyes necessary because ethereum can do it all uh, how do you see that playing out yeah so it is possible for many of these new blockchains to have some sort of bridge between ethereum um, we we know that, that, that there are some there are some projects that are tackling this problem head-on 
the question is, you you and the question is, and you you brought this up. Do you actually need a whole entire separate blockchain, or can you do something on Ethereum as an L2 that does what that separate blockchain would have done? And the answer is you can obviously you can do anything you want to do on an Ethereum L2. And if you just bake it in natively to Ethereum, you have stronger assurances. If you build something that can communicate with Ethereum better than a completely separate blockchain like Bitcoin and Ethereum, they speak separate languages. Like Ethereum has the uh, Ethereum virtual machine. It uses Solidity. Uh, Bitcoin is a scripting language. These things can't communicate very well. It's like speaking like French and Chinese. Like it's not going to happen. Um, Ethereum killers or Ethereum, like, you know, alternatives or, you know, other blockchains like Cosmos, they have like these uh, bridging mechanisms like, that's like the Google Translator. But also you could just build it straight onto Ethereum and it's more efficient if you just use Ethereum and Solidity, right? It's just a fish more efficient that way. It's easier to build bridges. Um, it's less complicated. It, things can develop and iterate faster. Um, and so if you can do everything you can do on an Ethereum killer on an Ethereum L2, it just seems to make more sense to do it on an L2. Um, and so that's kind of where like, I'll accept the label of ETH max or if Ethereum maximalist, because like it can be done on Ethereum. And I think that it's better if you just do it on Ethereum. So just do it on Ethereum. Like that's where everyone else is doing it anyways. And you have stronger security assumptions if you just bake it into the Ethereum protocol itself. And what about, and perhaps this isn't a challenge, knowing the future of ETH and ETH2 and, and where things are going. Uh, but in regards to gas fees, I have to bring that up because when we talk about money, you talk about um, how this is a monetary uh, challenge that we're facing. Mm -hmm. There's places in the world uh, where those who are adopting Ethereum as money, they may not have a lot. And so to get right. into Ethereum, uh, you know, holding ten dollars to them in usd value may actually be quite a lot of money and that 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 may be all they're able to afford on you know a month's earnings and so when to make a transaction if their gas fee is like ten dollars as well mm -hmm. i mean you know that that's a huge barrier or could be so i don't know maybe mm -hmm. what are your thoughts around that is that even a problem knowing it's something being worked on uh, right now it's a it's a huge problem, and yes, it is being worked on. Um, the and this is why Ethereum has always committed to scale. So so now when we talk about like this whole revolution of cryptocurrencies, it's both a tech revolution and a money revolution. Now we're talking about the tech side. This is why we have to improve the tech side. Um, Ethereum killers uh, improve the tech side in in interesting ways, but I don't think they do it in the right way. They they work on it through like. Um, by, by like kind of centralizing nodes. So there's less nodes running the system. Um, and we can, we can talk about all the intricacies behind that. But basically that uh, if less computers run the uh, distributed network, that distributed network can go faster, right? We, we, it's easier if there's just like, you know, 100 nodes rather than 10,000 nodes. It's easier to propagate all the information. That sacrifices decentralization, which is one of Ethereum's core principles that it does not sacrifice. So Ethereum said, we are going to figure out how to scale, but we're not going to sacrifice decentralization. We're not going to sacrifice being like a public ledger that, that can be verified and downloadable by all. So what Ethereum did is they took the hard way, like they didn't cut corners. And instead of scaling via kind of like tricks of networking and CPU usage, they are scaling via cryptographic um, new new cryptographic mechanisms where cryptography can take a big piece of data and then they can turn it into a proof which is a little piece of data that proves that the big piece of data exists and then they only include the little piece of data into the blockchain so the blockchain actually becomes more efficient the the metaphor i like to use is if you get like 
if you go back and get one of the early Xbox 360 games, like the graphics are kind of shitty, uh, later Xbox 360 games, graphics are incredible. The hardware didn't change. Like developers just learned how to make more with less. They use, they optimized, they con they consolidated, they compressed, uh, and that's how we think Ethereum is going to scale using cryptography. Uh, that's one of the big improvements from Ethereum one to Ethereum 2.0 is using uh, BLS signatures, which is a cryptographic term. We're moving away from one type of cryptography into a, a more advanced, more developed, more researched type of cryptography that allows for much more compression. That's one way to scale, very important way to scale. And then there's also sharding, which just shards out the Ethereum blockchain from one blockchain to 64 blockchains. And the nodes of Ethereum, the, the many, many nodes of Ethereum that we didn't sacrifice because when we didn't sacrifice decentralization starts to only verify one 64th of the blockchain, right? And then all of these things come together. So then we get 64 times the amount of scale that way. And these things start to compound as well. So we, we had the compression and then we had 64 times more blockchains. That's a multiplier. So if we can compress things like 10x and then we add 64x more block space in, in the shards, so we're, we're already at 640 times scale. And we haven't even talked about L2, um, which um, th there are many different uh, types of L2s. The, the word that people will hear will probably be rollups, where uh, the way that rollups work is that a contract on Ethereum makes a transaction that states the rules of how it will verify transactions off-chain. And so it's, it, it loads up a rule-based system and says to Ethereum, I'm going to process transactions according to these rules. And then it goes and does that on, a, on its own like centralized server. But the, and so it gets the scale of a centralized server, but the assurances of the Ethereum blockchain, right? And so this is how we can like run a, a high, high bandwidth, high throughput game where people are trading like tokens back and forth instantaneously, like the, like the snap of the fingers. And then it just loads up that state and compresses it using cryptography. And then it puts it back onto Ethereum once every 10 minutes, once every 30 minutes. So it only puts a little bit of information into Ethereum at a very much, a very longer time. And this is another way to scale. This is like getting, um, getting the UI and the UX of doing transactions in like your World of Warcraft game where you like you were buying and selling with a vendor that it should mimic that sort of style. And so that also takes a zero gas. Um, and, and then there's a bunch of other opportunities to scale as well. Uh, and all, again, all of these things compound. And so scaling is in the future of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and so I do not believe that people should be spending $10 to swap tokens. That's ridiculous. Uh, people should be spending less than 10 cents to do that. However, I do want to make the case that high gas fees are a good thing. Um, they suck for people. And it's and may, maybe it's like a privilege to be able to say that, like, oh, like high gas fees, we actually want this. However, it's important that to, to think on the monetary side of things, all transactions on Ethereum have some sort of value with them. Like probably within the last minute, somebody just sent a million dollars worth of ETH from one address to another, that took up block space. And if uh, so many people are transferring large value transactions, transactions that have just a lot of economic value to them, that's going to fill up the block space and that's going to push out people that are uh, making transactions with just a little bit of value people are going to be less incentivized to spend $3 to send $10 than spending $3 to send $10 million. And so this is kind of the critique of public blockchains is that they kind of turn into quote unquote whale chains. Like you can only operate them if you have a lot of money. Um, and that's, that's why Ethereum has committed to scale because scaling is inclusivity. Scaling means that more people can engage with the blockchain, but 
high value transactions are always going to push out low value transactions. And that adds to the security of the blockchain, right? So if, if Ethereum is processing many, many high value transactions, miners are getting paid extra for securing the blockchain. And in the future, stakers who are uh, in, uh, when we transition from Ethereum to proof of stake, stakers get that extra reward. So as the Ethereum blockchain becomes a more valuable place to transfer value, it, those high value transactions compensate the people providing security to Ethereum. And so it's that, and that's where the money component gets involved here. You need to have your base money be extremely valuable because that's how we compensate miners or validators for their security. Um, so the more economic activity on Ethereum, the more necessary it is to have a high security blockchain and high gas fees are the way that we compensate proportionally to security. So it would be bad it would be bad if there were no fees. We need fees to keep these systems alive. We also need to find ways to have optionality for people that can't pay those fees to pay them in different ways or, or to make their transactions happen in different ways that doesn't cost them an arm and then a leg. David, I love the way you're explaining it. I'm learning a lot on this episode already, which is awesome. <laughs> but uh, so, so I, I have to ask you, um, because I, f I follow the space and whatnot, but I, I haven't fully wrapped my head around maybe the potential of NFTs, non-fungible mm. tokens. And and do you mind, if, for the benefit again of our audience, just kind of a, a brief explanation of what those are, the difference between fungible, non-fungible, but also like where you see the potential being in that space? Sure. So the, the easiest way to explain fungible tokens, um, and, and when we say tokens, everyone should also be thinking just assets. And that includes like Chuck E. Cheese tokens or like a quarter. A quarter is a token. A dollar is a token. Um, a fungible tokens, say say I have like, you, you have a dollar and I have a dollar and my dollar is pristine, but your dollar is wrinkled and ugly and it's got writing on it. Those are still dollars and that's because they're fungible, right? I wouldn't actually care all that much if I gave you my, if I had to give you my pristine dollar to receive your crappy dollar because it's still a dollar. That's what fungibility is. Non-fungible tokens, as you would imagine, are assets that don't have any other asset like it, right? So um, a, a, a deed to a house is a good representation of a non-fungible token. It's extremely unique, right? Uh, we could even talk about um, something like Pokemon cards, like a first edition holographic Pikachu. That's a non-fungible token. It's not the same as other Pikachus out there, right? That's a unique asset. Um, and maybe another metaphor is if you are playing World of Warcraft and you get a, a piece of loot, that piece of loot has a random number generator goes through it and, and puts out the stats for that piece of loot, right? So like a sword that does like 233 damage with like fire damage to it. That's unique. That's a unique sword. We can turn that into an NFT as well. The currency in that game, the gold that you use to purchase that, that sword, that's a fungible currency. The power of NFTs come from the fact that a single NFT token can represent any asset, any unique asset in the world, right? And bo both in the, the, the digital world, the Ethereum native world, where people are minting digital assets. There's a, there's a game called uh, Gods Unchained, which I like. It's very much like a, a Hearthstone or, or Magic the Gathering type game. Um, and, they, and the benefit... Uh, yeah, okay, I'm going to go into this one. <laughs> okay, so we have Magic the Gathering. Uh, it's physical cards, and you own them because you have them in your physical possession. And then you go and you play across the table with a real person. That's awesome because you own the cards. You can sell, you have, it's a bearer asset. In the same way, like gold is a bearer asset. If it's in your hand, you own it. Uh, and uh, you, uh, Magic the Gathering cards are also bearer assets. And so you can trade them with real people. And, but you also lose the benefit of a game like Hearthstone, which you can play on a computer, right? And there are certain mechanics that Hearthstone, the game, 
can do because it's a computer game and it's not, and there's like certain like random number generators or just randomness specifically is a really good example for something you can do in the Hearthstone game, which is very similar to the Magic the Gathering game, but you can't do it in Magic the Gathering because it's in the real world. Like there's this adding the computer element is really important. But the difference with Hearthstone is that when you purchase cards on Hearthstone, you're purchasing them through Blizzard, you don't actually own them. So like Blizzard could quote unquote de-platform you, right? They've cut off people's accounts after they have spent like tens of thousands of dollars on cards. And then they violated the terms of service and then Blizzard's just axed their account. They don't have their cards. They don't own them. They also can't trade them with other people. They can't sell their account. That's a violation of the terms of service. So you don't actually own the cards. So you're, you're buying the card packs from Blizzard, but you're just you're giving them money and then they're, they're just like giving you the credit of the card. It's, and so this is where something like Gauze Unchained is spanning the best of both worlds for Magic the Gathering and Blizzard. So with uh, Gauze Unchained, the cards that you open up and win in the game turn into tokens on Ethereum that go to your Ethereum wallet. And those are NFT tokens, right? You open up a pack, you get five NFT tokens, and the Gauze Unchained video game displays those tokens as cards in your deck. And so the, you can't get deplatformed from Gauze Unchained. And you can have this open secondary market where you can trade these things uh, on the internet. And so it's the best of both worlds. The NFT tokens from Gauze Unchained are like the real bearer assets of Magic the Gathering, but also have the power of digital computing and the internet behind it. And so that's was one of the, the greatest uh, examples for NFT that, that I think I can think of. Yeah, no, I love that description. Uh, before we get into kind of the last segment of our interview, I, I want to ask you, because the thing that I find really cool is you come into the space in 2017, like you said, the hype, everyone's talking about it, the price is rising, that's what gets the excitement. If you kind of believe the theory of, you know, we're, we're in the brink of stepping into another bull run here, um, there might be a lot of people coming into the space around now with with similar kind of mentality. But the, the difference between you and most people in 2017 is that you're still here. You stuck around the space, you stuck through the bear market. What's your advice to people who are getting brought in because of the the euphoria around price and that kind of thing? Um, just maybe like a word of warning for them or something along the lines mm -hmm. of of as they navigate this new this new idea. Yeah. So when I got into the space in 2017, I felt very very late. Uh, I felt like you know I, I only had like one ether to my name, and you know, as a broke college student, like that was a lot, uh, and I, I just felt late. Like like uh, this revolution has already happened. Like you know I'm late to the show, and maybe I was late for 2017. I definitely did not come out of 2017 positive on my investments. Um, but what I learned in the bear market is I was I'm so goddamn early to this whole entire revolution, uh, and and the 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 bull market messes with people's minds. Like it's a very euphoric time. People have trouble like understanding and measuring their emotions. And, you know, while that's typically related to people's bags and their investments, they get emotional about their investments. It also gets emotional about the industry because the industry is in, in just getting completely shifted. Um, so let it be known if anyone listener here thinks that they are late, like maybe you're late for this bull market, even though I don't think you actually are, but to this industry, you are still so incredibly early. Um, and I think it just takes time for that to, to come true. Uh, you're going to, you are going to run into this industry and you're going to be learning everything and everything will be confusing and you don't know where to go. And then at some point you kind of learn it all. 
you kind of just go down every single rabbit hole and then you realize that there's actually so much missing space that needs to be filled in this industry. And so for people that are interested in, in figuring out how to break into this industry, the answer for, for me, like I, I felt like there's nothing I can really contribute. I'm not a developer. I don't know how to code. Um, there's, I'm not a fund. I don't have it. I can't like create a fund. I'm, that's not me. But so how do I even like get started if I want to break into this industry? I just started writing. I just started doing work. Um, and at some point I realized that people liked what I wrote and that turned into more writing, which turned into more writing, which turned into a podcast, which turned into bankless. Um, if you, th there's such a insatiable demand for content of all types in this industry, that it's actually relatively easy to get listeners to listen to you because people want to consume content. And that would, that was what my specialty was. Your specialty can be something completely different, but to think that like this industry doesn't have a place for you is naive. Like this is such an unsaturated industry um, where like some random like 26 year old can come in and start working within like six months. Like that, that is an option for everyone that, who is listening to this. All you have to do is find what's interesting and figure out and, and what interests you and figure out how to just contribute. And especially with Ethereum, there are so many of these DeFi protocols that have treasuries that need labor, right? You need to do social media or marketing or just community management. Like the, there are plenty of jobs. If you go look, look for them, you just have to start contributing free value first. You know, people aren't going to trust you until you start doing things for free. And then, then, and then you'll get compensation after the fact. Can I ask, Running Bankless, you're full-time in crypto. That's an entrepreneurial thing. You could, uh, you know, going off of what you were just mentioning, getting into crypto, I mean, people may think eventually, well, I should get a job in crypto, and they could go look for employment um, hmm. with a crypto company, um, a blockchain company. But for you, you're now just solely doing Bankless, and I'm sure you've got your other investments. Does Bankless itself um, support you from a day-to-day yeah. -day standpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the bank, this is an advertiser model. So we have the podcast and then there are four advertisers in one podcast episode, two at the front, two in the mid roll. Um, and then the, the newsletter also takes, uh, advertisers and then what else are all, now, those are kind of like the big ways that, that we make money and, 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 and then the, the, also the, the, uh, subscribers, uh, revenue for the podcast as well. So, or for the, this, um, newsletter. So people pay $12 a month to get the premium version of the newsletter. Um, so that, that, uh, compensates my salary, Ryan's salary, and then also, um, Lucas's salary, who's kind of turning into our, our senior editor. Awesome. Super impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love mm -hmm. it. Um, David, we like to end every episode of show me the crypto with a three question segment called you had me at crypto. <laughs> All right, David, who is your favorite person to follow in the crypto space? Ah, ah, favorites. Can you, can I get a few more descriptors around the word favorite? Cause I could take favorite in so many different directions. Interpret it however you want. I'd yeah, say. Exactly. All right. All right. Well, I got to go with Anthony Cesano. Um, he, he's a, he's great on Twitter. He is also really informative, uh, and he's very sober in his takes. Uh, and so while, you know, DeFi mania is going crazy, like I kind of use Anthony to kind of gauge sentiment, uh, because I don't think he succumbs to some of the craziness as, as most people do. Um, he's also just a huge believer in Ethereum. Uh, he just uh, went for, he worked at set protocol and now he's an advisor at set protocol. Now he does these daily, uh, uh daily, daily YouTube videos and uh, daily newsletters, uh, releases 
called the Daily Gui. Uh, and he just lives and breathes Ethereum. Uh, like Ethereum is spoken out of his mouth. Uh, he, he does a really good job conveying the values and the principles of this space. Uh, and so uh, for people that are trying to learn more about Ethereum, I would definitely recommend Anthony Susano. That is Sazzle, S-A-S-S-A-L underscore zero X. There are, I think he's, he's, uh, he's become a meme at this point. Yes, he has become a meme. Yeah. Uh, for unrelated reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sazzle zero X with no underscore. Pardon me. What will the price of Bitcoin be 10 years from now? 10 years from now. Yeah. That, that's so long away. I can say any number right now. <laughs> yes, <you can. laughs> no, no one will, no one will hold me accountable. Exactly. Um, so that's a really hard question to ask because, uh, where you're asking what's the price of Bitcoin in relationship to dollars. So baked in that question is what is a dollar worth? It's a dollar worth. And I don't know what the dollar is going to be worth 10 years from now. And, and, uh, we, out of the bankless newsletter, we recently put out a piece, uh, in 2021 predictions, uh, where, uh, we predicted that the Coinbase IPO was going to IPO at above a hundred billion dollars, uh, speculation at, and initially was at 50 billion. And both Ryan and I thought that that was way too low. And that's at the end there. We think they're going to IPO at the end of 2021. And part of the question of like, how much is Coinbase going to be worth when they IPO towards the end of 2021 is even at the end of 2021, I don't know what the dollar's worth. Like we're printing a bunch of dollars, like 26% of the uh, supply of US dollars came in the last 12 months. I don't know what the dollar is going to be worth like in the end of this year. I definitely don't know what it's going to be worth in the end of 10 years. However, if you wanted to pin me down, I'll say ten million dollars. There you go, ten million dollars right. for one big. That's, that's the highest. You're we're a few episodes in here, and so many people say one million. That's just like the go-to answer. So I like your. Uh... <laughs> okay, here's here's a to another tirade. This industry moves in exponentials. It doesn't move in linear fashion, and people's brains, human brains, can't really comprehend that very well. People's brains like linear things, you know, 7% in the SPY per year. Like that's not crypto. Crypto is like, you know, three, three, uh, two to three years of flat. And then there's one year of like 10,000%. Right. Like you got to think in order to survive in this industry, you have to think in exponentials. All right. What is the most underrated coin or project in crypto? Mm. I really like Rocket Pool. And so if in order to become part of Ethereum staking, you need 32 Ether, right? You have to stake 32 Ether to become part of the proof of stake. That's how you get um, ETH dividends on your Ether, ETH yield. Uh, 32 Ether is like $40,000 right now. That's a large amount of money. Not everyone has $40,000 or 32 Ether. So if you still want to participate in Ethereum staking and part of the decentralization of the protocol, Rocket Pool is a staking pool, right? So if you only have eight Ether or just any number of Ether, you can go to Rocket Pool and pool your Ether with other people that also don't have 32 Ether. And then you, your combined 32 Ether can be used to stake. Um, and so I think that's a pretty underappreciated project. Um, it's something that is very close to the heart of Ethereum. It's part of Ethereum's core values of accessibility to the base protocol and decentralization. Um, so it's tackling really important problems all at once. Uh, we usually only ask three questions, but I'm going to add in a fourth for you based on your uh, interest in Ethereum. And I know mm -hmm. the whole dollar argument that's going to, but same question with the Bitcoin 10 years, what's the price of an ether in your opinion? Price of an ether in 10 years. It's gotta be, it's gotta be upwards of half a million. Love it. Love it. Yeah. David, this has been a pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks so much for joining us on show me the crypto. Thank you very much. Hey, 
this was a ton of fun, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to Show Me the Crypto. Please make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review this podcast.